From VinePair's New York City headquarters, I'm Adam Teeter. And in Seattle, Washington, I'm Zach Jabal. And this is the VinePair Podcast. And Zach, I know we normally do like a little bit of witty banter before we start the show and chat about either things we're really annoyed about right now in the world of drinks or things we're really excited about. But uh, I'm really honored because sitting across the table from me right now is Eric Asimov, um, the wine writer that basically is one of the main reasons that Josh and I started VinePair five years ago. Um, probably, I mean, not to give you too much praise, I know that's, but uh, probably the only wine writer I really liked to read when I was first getting into <laughs> wine, really, I mean, your book was amazing. Your column is incredible. I looked forward to it every single week. Um, I think probably the writer that I think writes the most for everyone, which is why we wanted to have you on today. So thank you so much for joining us. Hey, I'm, I'm thrilled to be here and I'm honored. I thought you were going to say you started Vine Pair because you needed an opposing voice. <laughs> <laughs> no, yours, I think, actually has always been very singular in the world of wine and stood out to me apart from a lot of others, which potentially we'll get to later if, if you'll let us, um, which I think is really, you, you have a way of making wine incredibly accessible in a way that I think is different from what wine writing that came before you. Um, I think you have a perspective on the world of wine and the way in the place people come from that is much more journalistic um, and that seeks to bring people in, in a way that isn't always about collecting. It's really about drinking what you love and drinking what you love now. Yeah, I, I don't really write about collecting at all. Um, what interests me is is the wine itself and the, the people who make it and um, it, trying to inspire other people to, to have these pleasures. Wine is for everybody. And, it, and it's so strange to me to want to stratify it as, as something that's uh, only for connoisseurs or certain kinds of enthusiasts. I mean, everybody can enjoy it. So that's, I think, what brings us to the topic we wanted to first start today and why, and why Zach reached out to have you on the show, which thank you again for coming, uh, which is you wrote an article, you do, you do, you've done wine school for five years now, right. right? And it was the first time that I'd seen you basically select three wines that are, we would consider mass produced or very mass market wines, I think it's fair to say. Yes. Um, and you said it had, you had the largest amount of comments you've ever had before, over 800. Yes. And... Positive and negative. It, it was polarizing, to say the least. Is it what you expected? Um, I, I guess I expected something smaller and, and maybe not quite as uh, emotional. So if you could summarize the three wines you sort of selected and sort of what happened, we'd love to chat with you a little bit about your takeaways from the experience. Yeah. Um, so ordinarily, I mean, the point of wine school is to really explore the world of wine. There's so much available right now. And, you know, people tend to get into their little categories and don't really go beyond. So um, this is, is bringing people into the the um, into all the wines that nobody ever heard of 20 years ago um, that are now available to us. And one of the, the constant um, complaints is that I'm picking wines that are too hard for people to find. They say, why can't you pick wines that are generally available everywhere? And I thought, um, okay, let me try to do that. And, and maybe I try to do it with a vengeance <laughs> because I, I wanted to make the other point that there's a, a vast gulf 
between the the wines that we're looking for that are often the um, uh, the products of local cultural traditions that might stretch back centuries mm-hmm. um, and are really um, works of craftsmanship versus the the mass produced wines that are available everywhere that are available everywhere because they're they're not really dependent on on nature they're not dependent on on families or 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 any sorts of traditions but they're in, in fact um produced in factories um with the aid of, of technology and, and manipulation so i thought uh, I, w- I would accomplish two things here first um, really uh, show what what it is to be a mass-produced wine, and to to show the the gap between these sorts of wines and the sorts of wines I'm generally trying to introduce people to. Interesting. So, Eric, one of the sort of central conceits that that's often put out there for those sorts of mass-produced wines is that they are a gateway for people; that they are a starting point; that people drink them when they're younger or have less access to wine or whatever, and will sort of naturally transition out of those wines to a, you know, more the kind of wines that you and Adam and I and and most probably of our listeners and readers are interested in wines that are products of a place and a time and, and of an effort, not of a factory. Do you buy that? I mean, my sense from reading the piece that you wrote is that you kind of don't, that you see these as as appealing to a totally different audience than the wines we're talking about. And that while some people might start out in in the sort of mass-produced wine camp and move to the fine wine camp, I guess, that is a small subset of the audience for these wines. Yeah, I don't buy that at all. I think that's just a a wine trade rationalization for making bad wine. Hmm. Um, You know, this whole uh, gateway argument is, is so odd. I don't. I don't really think anybody's done any any studies of it. And you could make the same argument about um, orange juice. You know, people people start off drinking orange juice, and then eventually they transition to wine. I mean, what does that right. prove to you? <laughs> Um, it just shows that at some point in your life, you're, you're drinking orange juice. People made the same argument about marijuana. You know, you start off with marijuana and eventually you're a junkie. Right. Because that's Not the true. way it is. <laughs> um, so the, the fact is that um, most people start drinking cheap wines and some of those wines can be really good. Some of them can be really bad. And I think that people... Um, tend to to gravitate if they have good experiences with with wine and, and let's be honest I mean wine's a little bit like pizza I mean when you get down to it there's really no such thing as a bad pizza and That's and for true. the people the people who enjoy these wines um, they enjoy them so I'm, I'm not I don't want to be critical of, 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 of anybody who likes these wines, but for the most part, people who like these wines keep buying these wines. They don't say, oh, um, you know, the, the prisoner is so interesting to me that um, I'm going to I'm going to start exploring Chinon. You know, it's, <laughs> right. it's it's more as if you, you know, if you have an inexpensive wine from um uh, 
from the Languedoc, or you know, if you bought it in expensive wine from Ridge or or, right, or right. somebody like that, then you might be motivated to to want to learn more. But is that? I mean, so I think if you're in a market like ours, or even Atlanta, you know, Chicago, etc., you have those choices. Right. But for someone who lives in a smaller market who only has the grocery store, are they also kind of I want to say screwed, but in a way hampered by the fact that those are really some of the only wines because only a few major wine companies control those shelves. And how, well, how do they get into wine? You know, I, first, I'm not sure there are a lot of people whose only recourse is the grocery store. I mean, I'm, I don't know. Right. You know, there, there are small clusters uh, uh, of wine lovers and stores and in places that you you wouldn't expect to find them. Right. There, uh, there's the internet if you're sufficiently motivated, but that's the key. It depends how motivated you are. Um, it depends what level of priority you you put on wine. Right. Um, you know, for people who who just don't care that much and just want to grab something at the at the grocery store, it's, it's fine. You know, it's it's. It, it's what do you do when you want something more and then you can't get it. And that's a whole other issue. <laughs> <laughs> but is there with the grocery store, can we put a little bit of blame on the grocery stores and that, you know, your most recent wine school, you've gone back to the grocery store yeah. and, and you to stock more of those wines instead right. to say, Hey, Kroger, you guys should have, you should be looking at the long duck. You should be looking at, parts of Spain that are really affordable, that make amazing wines. There are also American regions of which you could find great values for your customers, but instead you're not. I mean, is it also on them to be better retailers? Well, you know, there are supermarkets that are better retailers right. and, and no doubt um, every supermarket has some sort of wine that, um, you know, somebody with maybe more elevated expectations from wine or, or it's not going to sneer at, right? You know, but it, it's a question of whether you just want to go to a place where you have to settle for things, or whether you want to be um, challenged a little bit more. And yeah, I mean, you know, what can you expect from from supermarkets? Supermarkets are always um, followers for the most part. I, I've heard of a, a small chain in the South that actually has put a lot of uh, effort into building up their, their wine selection. I can't remember the name of it, unfortunately, but... Um, so I'm trying to think because that's it, where my family is. So yeah. I'm trying to think about it. Where can I send them? It, 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 <laughs> it, it can be done. But, you know, it wasn't as if most supermarkets um, led the way to, to – um, uh, with shelves of organic produce or, or um, you know, chicken without antibiotics or anything like that. It's all – they're always going to respond to what their customers call for. Right. So they'll follow the market. That makes yes. a lot of sense. Hey, Eric, I have a question, though, you know, it, when, to talk about people who maybe do fall into this middle ground, who whose experience with wine is maybe more tilted towards what's on grocery store shelves mm -hmm. or what's available easily, but do find themselves, you know, sort of more interested, but, but maybe are not um, positioned to 
um, you know, devote a ton of their energy, but they want to, but they want to learn more. And, and obviously, you know, reading you and, and participating in wine school is one option for them. And, and, you know, hopefully reading Vine Pair and listening to us is another. But as far as wines themselves, you know, where would you steer those people who, who are looking to kind of understand why they in our, you know, I think all of us would agree should maybe make that jump from, you know, sort of casual, sort of unthinking wine drinking to something a little more thoughtful. Are there, and obviously everyone's tastes are different, but are there specific wines or, or regions that you would say at this point in time are, are really kind of emblematic and, and illustrate that point without being, you know, necessarily out of someone's price range? Um, well, first of all, I would, I would just make the point that, um, the majority of wine drinkers are are completely satisfied with what they find in grocery stores and supermarkets. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's really um, a, a much smaller slice that that buys all of these, uh, you know, what the trade would call super premium wines. Um, so, you know, supermarkets are in, in a sense catering to their their customers. Um if you want to get beyond that, uh, you know, there are um, and you don't have access to really good stores because that's what I really uh, suggest uh, to most people. Find a really good store yeah. and become a regular customer, um, get to know people. And in fact, the the wine school column began because of a column I wrote. I would say maybe back in 2005, before really, before most people had high speed internet. And uh, I said the best way to learn about wine was not about going to classes or reading a book, but finding a good wine shop and buying a, a mixed case of wine. Mm-hmm. Give, the, give the merchant a budget and say, fill it up with 12 different bottles. And over time, drink those bottles and, and keep track of which ones you liked, which ones you didn't like. Um, bring that little uh, report back to the merchant and ask for another mixed case. And eventually, if you find uh, you know a, a category that you seem to like a lot, just explore that category. But there's a whole way of, of doing it yourself. And, and wine school grew out of, out of that because I thought, well, now we can all do this ourselves together and we can, we can, um, we can communicate just over the internet right. and, 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 and it's fun. So obviously the, the wine shop, we believe exactly what you're saying, that that's the, that's the easiest way to learn about wine. Or when we talk about beer, it's the easiest way to learn about great craft beers is find a really good craft beer store, someone that's really passionate right. that can help right. lead you through. But what about for the person that says, okay, so fine, you're saying it's not a gateway wine. I get it. But for me, I thought it could be. I'm a prisoner drinker, but I go to the restaurant and I tell the sommelier I drink the prisoner and I'm looking to explore. And the immediate thing I get as a reaction is sort of a, oh, okay, well, I'll give you Amarone. Because there's there's no give and take. And, and I've heard that from sommeliers as well who've told me when they've been told that they, someone drinks Mayomi or the prisoner, et cetera, that the, the immediate thing they do is like, okay, you like sugar. I'm just going to give you a sweet wine and walk away. I'm not going to try to understand why you like those wines. Is it, should we be putting more pressure on the sommeliers on the floor to help guide people into drinking better wine or no? Well, you know, um, sommeliers have a tough job. They have to, uh, they have to be good psychologists and they have to, <laughs> um, you know, take a, a reading of their, their customers in 30 seconds. And if somebody says, 
I I almost always drink the prisoner. What do you have like that? Right. Um, you know, I can understand that. That's not a question that that leads one to think that they're interested in exploring. Um, you could say, oh, well, you know, that's from Napa Valley. And we've got, um, you know, we've got some really good Napa Cabernets that are right. not too exorbitant. I mean, you know, if they cost the same as the prisoner, which is, you know, 45 bucks uh, right. retail, um, you know, they could get something decent to, to try that uh, theoretically, at least would be a little bit drier and, and a little bit more um, focused. Right. So I, you know, I don't, I don't fault people like that, and I can't, uh, I can't actually imagine them bringing out the amarone, <laughs> which would cost at least, you know, twice as much. Or, you know, to to get back to your question, Zach, um, you know, what what would you do? I, I would also mention um, uh, internet merchants like Garagiste, which uh, you know, it has a model of, of just. Um, uh, bring in a, a lot of different kinds of wines, and these are available in, in most states. And of course, they only deliver like two or three times a year, right. so that could be a problem. You have to be willing to, um, you know, buy a little in, in a little bit more quantity than you would just going to the grocery store. But um, but somebody like that is, is really good to just use as a as a testing point for the the various sorts of, of wines they would uh, bring to you. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good suggestion and obviously a, another option for people who do want to explore. And, and I, I will say candidly for me, that's that's how I got into wine in some ways is, is both a wine shop uh, sort of uh, faith and then also some uh, online ordering actually from Garages to our locals here in Seattle. So, uh, you know, <laughs> Wanted You'll to Seattle, Zach. Hey, man, you talk about New York all the time. I got to throw in a little plug every city. now and then. I can't. I mean, I can't, I can't help it. That's it's a better city. I'm sorry. Okay, man. Okay. Well, whatever. I'm not gonna. Well, we can. We can. We can put that up for a reader poll later. You've but, got uh, more Tom Douglas restaurants. That's true. We have. We have all of them. Um, <laughs> So I wanted to ask though, Eric. So you know, one thing that's really fascinating to me is you know you've been been covering wine and covering wine for the New York Times for a long time, and I'm wondering you know for for both Adam and I who are you know a little newer to this and and you know kind of from a, a are you a calling me old? No, we're I was, not. We're not. I was really trying to avoid saying that. I just I didn't. I didn't call you old, Eric. Zach called you old. I just was going with experienced, but uh, <laughs> but I was wondering you know you came in and. And I'm wondering, you know, what was the what was the state of of wine, and maybe a little bit of of wine journalism when you when you got into it, and do people kind of look at you and say like, who is this guy? Because it seems crazy to me now that anyone would ever have had that reaction. But obvi- I'm guessing when you started, you were you know you were not someone who who had um you know who had a, a long history in that regard. And so I'm, I'm curious, like, what was your experience like? Well, my my history, my experience was in reviewing restaurants, yeah. which I had done for, for quite a while before I started writing about wine as well. And, um, you know, I, I started uh, uh, focusing on wine as well in 1999 when Frank Pryle was still the, the wine critic of the New York Times. And back then, of course, we had uh, uh, Parker and The Spectator and, um, you know, it was a more uh, healthy state of journalism. So quite a few newspapers had their own wine writers. And, um, you know, you you didn't have the um, 
the voices on the internet, this was pre-blogs, pre-high-speed internet, and pre-social media. So you were restricted to the, the general voices of, of uh, the dedicated critics like Parker and The Spectator, a few others, the, um, the English critics, and a few influential newspaper voices like Pryl, like um, Dan Berger, who at that time was at the uh, L.A. Times, I believe, and, you know, a, a few others. Um, I didn't really get a, uh, you know, a, a, you know, who's he kind of reaction when I started writing, because a lot of people knew my my food writing. And I had been in the, uh, you know, in, in, in restaurants, I had met a, a lot of uh, wine producers as a food writer. So, um, you know, I, I, it, it wasn't as if I, I think the, the, str the strongest element of who's he came from other wine writers, you know, because, um, <laughs> yeah, that's I mean, you know, it's, there's, for somebody to get, uh, you know, a perch like the New York Times job is, uh, you know, there might be a little, little bit of resentment involved. I don't know, but um, yeah, it, it, I, I would say this: no matter what sort of experience you have in wine, to start writing about it weekly uh, from the, the vantage point of the times, it, it does take a while to get your bearings and to develop a a context to. Uh, uh, so that you feel informed and so that you don't feel as if you're discovering the world every week. Well, so you've, you've written before that you're a writer for the New York times and that the way that you look at wine is through the lens of New York as, a, as almost a local paper. But at this point you have such a national platform. Has that changed your perspective on what you write? I mean, you're, I would say the most recognized critic in the country at this point, probably the most read, so has that changed how you approach what you taste or is it still that you're really writing from the vantage point of the way that Sifton looks at, I mean, all of the times is not reviewing LA restaurants, but look, really looking at the scene in New York. No, um, I, I don't think I've actually ever really felt that way. Right. I mean, there's, uh, the Times has always had a national audience and really, um, you know, now that it's... Uh, primarily a digital publication, it's got a global audience. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, I've never looked at it as writing for a local New York audience, but I do write it from, write, write from a New York perspective because I have access to so many wines in New York. I mean, I think there are maybe a handful of cities where, where you do have this kind of access and it's, um, you know, it's a, it's a benefit because you you develop a wider context. You know, it's a lot more difficult to to write about wine if you are in. I, I don't want to demean any city, but you can demean let's Seattle. Just say Tulsa. <laughs> yeah, if I were in Seattle, well, then I would have um, I would have all the advantages that come with being in Seattle. But sure. uh, but if I were in Tulsa, I might not. True. I'm also it's also really interesting to me, you know, when you talk about that sort of 
uh, access and then to some extent sort of the perspective of looking at wine, both both from where you are, which is, you know, I think unavoidable for all of us, but also, um, you know, an important thing for, for people to keep in mind. You know, where do you look in the world of wine these days and whether it's um, domestic or international and and sort of, you know, like I know you recently were traveling in Australia. You know, wh- where is where is the I mean, obviously, I think it's easy to say there's excitement in in the classic wine regions, but you know, I, in some ways, maybe because I'm out here on the frontier, in some sense, I, I find the some of the up and coming regions to be you know interesting in the in the sense that they can kind of explore and experiment and do things in a different way. You know, where do you see um, that level of excitement? What where are some of the places that you either have traveled or or look to travel or maybe just have tasted wine from that that do kind of get you um, excited about the the future of wine? Well, I, I'm I'm really open to excitement, and I, I am fascinated pretty much everywhere I go. Um, I do believe, though, that uh, it's really through visiting particular regions that you really get a sense of of their potential and their diversity. Because relying on um, importers, particularly from new world regions is, is tricky because people are always looking for what's, um, what's already uh, established and what's already approved uh, critically. That's why you have a period uh, with so many new regions where they are just, you know, the first things you taste are Cabernet and Chardonnay and Sauvignon Blanc and, and, you know, all, all of the international varieties that, um, that, that people make wine out of basically to gain approval. And it's really beyond that where you see what the producers themselves are interested in, not, not the big commercial producers, but the, the wine loving producers. So if you go to, to Argentina, for example, and, you know, as far as we're concerned here in the U S it's a steady diet of Malbec, Malbec, Malbec. And, um, you don't really see the the um, experimentation and the uh, diversity of grapes. Uh, same thing in, in Chile, because it's so dominated by by big wine companies. Um, it's really hard to get beyond what they're doing, and and I found that to be especially true in in Australia, where you know Americans really have a stereotyped view of of what Australian wine is, and I I had it myself, although um, you know it's that started to break down a few years ago when I went to a tasting of of wines made in Australia, but that were not that available in the US. And so I've, um, I've been really curious about what goes on in Australia. And I, you know, I, it was revelatory trip. And I, I say that fully aware that, you know, I'm probably the last wine writer to get there because we, you know, we don't, we can't accept press trips and, and those sort of uh, paid junkets, but we, we have to pay our own way. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, I'm I'm a little bit behind most bloggers and in, in in exploring the world, but you know, it was amazing. We never, At the same time, I don't have to go where Wine Australia tells me. Right. So <laughs> we've never been before either, but I would love to go. Have you never been, have you, Zach? 
No, it's definitely up on the list. But actually, funny because I've had that same experience with Australian wine recently. There's a small importer here in Seattle who uh, specializes in some in some of these um, small production Australian wines, most of which I think aren't actually even available in the rest of the U.S. <clears throat> I'm just saying Seattle. Um, but um, but uh, it's been really amazing to me too that to have that to to understand Australia as a as a continent as a wine producing region that is you know so much more than the producer of really really big wines in one way or another um whether they're inexpensive or very expensive that 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 it was when i was first getting into wine so i want to ask you uh, sort of to end the conversation a few hot takes feel free to answer them or not because they're going to be they're, they're super hot takes number one it's been a lot of writing recently uh not by vine Bear, but by other publications that millennials are destroying the wine business Right, that we don't drink good enough wines, or we're not spending enough. You buy that? Ridiculous. I mean, I just I don't get the obsession with millennials. I mean, millennials are just you know, it's it's another generation with different technology than the previous generation, and um, you know what what strikes me is that. American millennials, at least, come into uh, come of age in an era of connoisseurship. You know, it's not just a question of wine. You know, when I grew up, there were like three beers in the U.S. Right. You know, now you have hundreds of of, of uh, microbrews. You have like uh, dozens of, of olive oils and you know chocolate that's supposed to have terroir and, and honeys and, and teas and and you know for people who get into this sort of thing it's it's perfect perfect training for you know how to think about wine um, you know it's just a you know uh, mixology there was never right. such a thing and now <laughs> people are are you know debating the best teacher and, uh, <laughs> you know to say nothing of of, of uh, mezcal and 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 uh, vermouth and everything else so you know i i just think it's it's ridiculous i think uh millennials want what what everybody else wants they they want um they want authenticity they don't want people talking bullshit to them and um and they want to eat and drink well absolutely so speaking of authenticity and possibly bullshit um if you thought the last one was a hot take, um, you want to give us like uh, your thoughts on natural wine and its, um, I think, outsized presence in wine writing, even though, I mean, it's like the opposite of supermarket wine in that like it's drank by very few people, but seems to be the only thing anyone can talk about. Um, I, I, I love natural wine and I think it's uh, fascinating. And I think that most of the discussion about uh, natural wine is the, the equivalent of discussion about millennials. It's, it's ridiculous. Nat, natural wine is a, is a genre of wine like any other. There are good wines, good versions. There are bad versions and there's a whole lot in between. Um, I think, you know, natural, the, the notion of natural wine is more of an ideal than a reality, and it's something that um, that people ought to strive for if they're serious about wine. Um, and you know, it's it's like any 
form of, of avant-garde, whether it's jazz or, or um, cooking or literature or theater, you know, the, the influence goes far beyond the, the number of people who are practicing it because they're, they're pushing boundaries. And um, I, I think the influence of natural wine on, on um, the wine world at large has been great because it's forced people to think more carefully about where their grapes come from, how the wine is made, and and exactly what they're they're getting in in the bottle, you know. I think I think that the the overwrought criticism of, of natural wine says a lot more about the the critics than it does about the the wine itself. And one one more thing about that, um, I would say that that the uh, professionalism of the people who who practice this genre is really on the rise. Um, most good natural winemakers have no patience with flaws. They, they don't want mousy wines. They don't want bready wines. Uh, they work incredibly cleanly and, and carefully. And the cliche of the stinky barnyard wine is, 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 is just that. Um, I, I think that we really need to widen our understanding of what wine flaws are Mm -hmm. and, and realize that just because the wine, um, is, is squeaky clean doesn't mean it's not flawed. I think boring wines are flawed wines. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah. Um, how's that for a hot take? I love that. (laughs) That was amazing. Actually, uh, it gave me a lot to think about. What about you, Zach? Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a really good point that that there is that ripple effect where even if you know a lot of producers may not go the to the sort of ideological extremes of some people who who are sort of the the you know, leading uh, edge of the natural wine movement or whatever that that it definitely has already had a tremendous impact and in part just as you said, Eric, promoting these ideas of. Um, adherence to sustainability and um, a sort of minimal interventionist, especially in an industry where you know sometimes people intervene where they don't have to, and I think that's that's a that's being driven to some extent out of the the wine industry and in, in these kinds of areas, and and I think that's a, a wonderful thing. I, I think the only thing I would. I would a little bit disagree with this. I think the downside to me with natural wine is like any movement, it has attracted a lot of people who are less uh, scrupulous, and I think are using. Uh, what has become a a hip term or a, an idea to sell what I think is bad wine and is flawed wine and and may have never been able to be marketed previously. Fortunately, I think that's not a huge segment of that industry, but I unfortunately have to taste some of it as a professional obligation. And it's clear when the people who are making it or selling it are, you know, essentially snake oil salespeople. I, I think that's true. And it's, it's certainly something to be aware of. Um, I would give you two other examples of the influence of, of natural wine. Um, first, the the rediscovery of local traditions and the embrace of of indigenous grapes that the established wine culture had had somehow rejected that's um, straight out of uh, out of natural wine in the Loire Valley of in you know, 20 years ago, uh, resurrecting Roma Rantine and, and Pinot Dornis and, and grapes like that. 
The second is simply the the sort of um, subversive attitude that I, I think has liberated wine in the last uh, 10 or 15 years from the, you know, knuckling under to, to the centralized, powerful critics and, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, taking order orders from hidebound bureaucrats. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, you really have to push boundaries and um, that attitude as well has, has come from natural wine. So obviously this is why I think you're the best wine writer in the country right now. Um, so I, I cannot tell you how honored I am that you came on this podcast. Um, one last question, yeah. which is the one I'm the most interested in. What are you drinking right now? What are you the most <laughs> excited about? You know, it's, it, it's an honor for me to, to be here. And um, I mean, a lot of, of, my drinking is purely the function of what I am writing about. So I'm writing about uh, Australia. I have a few more stories coming out from that trip. Uh, I've got to go back to those supermarket wines because I'm, I'm writing about that in wine school. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, I, every, every year there comes along a, a genre of wine where it just seems that, that there's um it's just misunderstood somehow or doesn't get the the uh, credit or respect that I think it deserves. And so I'm I'm going to do a piece on Chianti very soon. We just did a huge Chianti tasting in the office. Ah. It was really interesting. Really interesting. I mean, there's some amazing stuff being made. Although uh, Grand Selezione is still a little weird. I don't really know if they, sh- they should be doing it, but... <laughs> You know, there's there's no protecting wine from the from the bureaucrats who are in charge. It's it's, it's a sad and and often repeated story. Very true. Well, well, it's the it's the reason to uh, to sometimes go to places where they can make wine without a whole lot of bureaucracy, which is I means sometimes you got to get out of Europe. Exactly. <laughs> well, or or just out of the Appalachian. Right, Which that is, too. You know, there. That's also a time honored, and that's where we have uh, Montevertini and and plenty of others. Amazing, Eric. Thank you so much for joining us today. This was an incredible. Uh, the the honor was mine. Awesome, Zach. I will talk to you next week, and thank you everyone for listening. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Vine Pair. We'd love to hear what you think. Feel free to drop us a line at podcast at vinepair.com. And if you really love the show. We'd love if you'd rate it and leave us a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Reviews and ratings really help other people discover the show. Now for the credits. VinePair is recorded in New York City at VinePair headquarters and in Seattle, Washington at Cloud Studios. Our engineer is Nick Patriot, and the show is produced by Zach Joal and me. Our show logo was designed by Daniel Gridberg. Special thanks as well to the entire VinePair staff, including but not limited to my co-founder, Josh Mallon, and our editor-in-chief, Emily Saladino. Thanks so much for listening and see you next week.